Hello, good morning, welcome. My name is Matt, I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons. It's great to be with you and see you here this morning. Um, normally I'm not up here right now. Normally we're just like singing our first song. But today, as you know if you've been here for the last few weeks, we have been in the uh, book of Ruth. And today we're actually having what we're calling Ruth Reimagined. We're gonna retell the story of Ruth um, through the lens of our own experiences. Here's the scoop. The story of Ruth has four chapters, as you guys know. So this morning, our morning is going to have four movements, and each of our movements is going to follow a pattern, and this is the pattern. We're going to hear the story of Ruth retold through Scripture. Start with Scripture, right? This is the foundation of our hope. This is where we're going to find God's revelation. And then we're going to hear from somebody in our church who has a story that connects with that theme from that chapter. And then we're going to sing, or then, and while they share, we're going to display the artwork that was created for that chapter. So we have Vin's art over here, Solomon's art is over here, and then on the screens we're going to have images of all of the art while they're sharing. So these are pieces of art that people in our church have made um, to correspond to the theme of that chapter of Ruth while the uh, person is sharing their life story. And then finally, at the end of each of these movements, we will sing a song that also corresponds and relates to the theme of that chapter. So it's scripture, story, art, song. Scripture, story, art, song, every single time. Why all this effort? Why to do this differently this morning? Um, I think sometimes it's hard to see the connections between what we read in Scripture and then the realities of our lives. Like, sometimes it's hard to see, like, how does this thing in Scripture connect to my life? But what I think we'll see this morning is that through these arts, through the art, through these songs, through these passages, as we hear these stories, we will each be reminded of the ways that God's Hesed love shows up in our own lives. In our hardest moments, when we cling to our faith, as we take bold steps forward in trust, as we commit ourselves to God day to day. So that's the hope this morning. I think we're all ready for Ruth Reimagined this morning. I'd like to introduce you to our two scripture readers, Megan and Jacob. And as they come forward, I'm going to pray for us to start our service. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. Then Elimelech died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them both goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. But Ruth replied, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? This, this is, is the, the word, word of, of the Lord. Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Megan, and I lead our Sunday morning, Sunday morning children's ministry, otherwise known as Kids Commons. I'm also married to Matt, who's one of the pastors here. And we have four kids, if you don't know. Um, Griffin is 10, our twins, Thatcher and Anderson, are 9, and our youngest, Paxton, is 3. Um, over the last four years, I have developed a very palpable fear that anytime Matt or one of our four boys gets sick, they're going to die. Now, as I say that this morning, and even in the moment of sickness, I recognize it's ridiculous to believe that every cough could lead to something fatal, but that anxiety has grown in me all the same. I wasn't always this way, checking on my nine-year-old in the night, which I just did last night, uh, to make sure that he's still breathing, wondering if every rash or sore throat warrants a trip to the emergency room, although to be fair, in our case, it often has. Uh, but as a family, we have experienced major health crisis after major health crisis over the last four years. So here I am, afraid death is lurking around every corner, waiting to take someone I love most. I began to recognize this unhealthy response to every illness in our family several months ago, and I asked my counselor for help. She suggested something called narrative therapy, which would allow me to tell the story of each specific health crisis and hopefully move toward freedom from my anxiety and a healthier perspective on the events that have shaped it. So during these narrative therapy sessions, I started talking about one of the hospitalizations at a time in detail, what happened, how I felt, what I was thinking, what was happening in my body at the time, my counselor wrote it all down and then read it back to me. My homework was then to read it several times during the week, share it with others who could help fill in it, and share it with others who could help fill in any gaps. It was pretty fun. Um, so most recently, my focus was on Matt's heart surgery, which happened in July of 2020. Earlier that year, we found out that Matt and two of our boys have a rare genetic disorder that affects their connective tissue. For Matt, it had caused a part of his heart to grow much larger than it should be, and he needed surgery quickly to replace it and keep it from rupturing. Now, even though it was an intense surgery involving a very important organ, there was only a 1% chance of complications, and he was in the hands of one of the best surgeons at one of the best hospitals. You may not know this about me, but I am a pretty big math nerd, and I... Um, wasn't too scared of a 1% chance in those days. I would take those odds. Um, we did know recovery would be challenging in a lot of ways, especially with four small children at the time during a pandemic. And uh, so we asked for help following the surgery. Our family and friends, many of you in this room, offered all kinds of specific help that really did make a huge difference in our day-to-day post-surgery. But the one thing that I'd end up needing most I didn't even think to ask for. Thankfully, my friend Rachel, who I met in the earliest days of our church plant, offered without me having to ask. A few days before surgery, Rachel said she'd meet me in the city that day and just be there to talk or not talk, whatever I wanted that day. And I almost said no because I didn't want to waste her time. I thought I'd be fine on my own. But at the last minute, I decided, sure, why not? 
About an hour after the surgery was supposed to be over that day, I got a call from the surgeon that Matt's heart had stopped on the table, and no one knew why. They'd hooked him back up to the bypass machine, so his heart was beating again, but the surgeon didn't know exactly what was next. That's not what you want to hear. It was the scariest moment of my life, and praise God, I wasn't alone. When I waited for hours for an update, and then hours more for another, and then hours more for the call that I could finally see him, even though he wasn't awake and his chest would remain open until the following day, I wasn't alone. God provided the presence of a trusted friend on my worst day when I didn't even know that I would need it. When talking through that day with my counselor, I couldn't actually remember a lot of details, but I do remember Rachel standing with me in the park next to the Charles River when I got that first terrifying call. And I do remember Rachel walking beside me for miles in the city that day. And I do remember Rachel sitting across from me at a table outside of a Whole Foods. Talking about that day has not cured me of my health-related anxieties, but it did remind me that I wasn't alone. And that in someone's hardest moment, it probably doesn't matter that much what we actually say or do. But like Rachel and like Ruth, it just matters that we're there. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Then Boaz asked his foreman, Who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, She is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes' rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer, and all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. This, this is, is the, the word, word of the Lord. Lord. Hi, my name is Christina Nice, and for those of you who don't know me, I come with a nice family. Pun intended here. My husband Joel and two kids, Maxwell and Nia, and we attend here at High Rock Commons. 
I am also married to the nephew of Gary and Ellen Cushing, and my father is a close friend with my husband's grampy and late Nana. Whoa, you are in a hard season. This has been said to me over and over in the last 10 years. And yes, these kind things people say are accurate, but what is just as true is how faithful God has been. <laughs> to, to me and my family. All right, this, I'm just going to try to read this. This is one of those moments, like Megan, where I wonder, like, is this the end because of what I'm going to read next? The story of Ruth was a life-giving story to me as a young girl. I wanted to be just like her, bold and strong, out in the field working for God, being truly seen for who I was. I used to imagine how beautiful her brown skin must have been. Maybe she was darker than me. Maybe she had brown, wavy hair like me. I was always looking for female leaders who loved God. At a young age, I began to really love a good underdog story. You see, I often saw myself as an underdog. I had gone through a lot of hard things, and I would dream of God blessing me as I aged. Learning to trust the sovereignty of God has been a lifelong lesson for me. Even in the hardest things, he has always shown himself faithful to me. He sees me, hears my sadness, and understands my challenges and shortcomings. What I have learned in my circumstances is that God can even take the hardest parts of my story and produce good. Ultimately, this kind of love humbles me and reaches the deepest places of who I am that I don't show to too many. He changes those parts while still loving me. I do not know why he allowed me to get sick with cancer and suffer, and yet I may not until I'm on the other side. As a mom, this was the most painful experience of my life. My biggest fear is to not be there for my children. But with God's sovereignty, in his hand, the cancer was found, and I had some of the best surgeons in the country who literally wrote the book on this type of surgery that I elected. I was able to have radiation with a doctor who is so talented, chemotherapy with a doctor who has the wisdom of over 50 years. The way that they advocated for me was the same way God shows up for us and advocates for us. I saw God in their dedication and their tenacity in my care. I hate cancer, but in this challenge, God has sewn together a story of great courage and overcoming that has changed me. This is not common, but I've learned how to surrender my legitimate needs to be alive and wants over to his will. I am left with life-altering side effects. From the cancer treatment, I can't hear anymore, and my left side is numb about 80% of the time. The list goes on, but if you know me, those are the two I most commonly joke about. I now deal, though, with intrusive post-cancer anxiety. 
I am obviously still in the midst of wrestling with God over this cup of suffering that anyone would beg to pass over them. But what I've learned is God is good, present, and consistent. Just like in the story of Ruth, I keep going because I trust the author of my story. Sometimes I don't understand the how or the why, but I can trust the faithfulness in the character of God. The cancer diagnosis actually changed me. I live in the present more and see the gift of every moment. I am humbled by the idea that no one is promised tomorrow and that every day is an opportunity to be faithful to God and to those he has allowed me to serve and be available for. I am so thankful for the life-saving mammogram imagery and God's divine intervention to save my life. God reminds me daily that he was the one that blessed me in the first place with the gift of Maxwell and Mia and the gift of my marriage and that he holds my future. Bedtime routine, book reading has become a highlight of my day. After facing your own mortality, the smiles light up the room differently and I actually really wanna know how things turn out for the main characters in our bedtime reading. I have to trust his sovereignty right now. In this trial, I have learned the act of surrender to trust nothing less than his hand moving on my behalf. He reminds me of who he is and that all I need to do is trust him even in the impossible, that I can dare to be brave even in the impossible because we serve a God capable of meeting us in the hard impossibilities. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he laid down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. But, but while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie, lie down here until morning. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. 
My name is Chris, and my wife, Amy, and our children, Coco, Noah, Jeremiah, and Mariah, have been part of the Haverhill Commons family since its early days. Matt has asked me to speak today about a time in my life when I have stepped forward in faith and God has responded with abundant love, as this is what we see play out in the relationship between Ruth and Boaz in Ruth chapter 3. I think there are two major decisions in our life uh, that Amy and I have made together that fit this bill. And they're related, so I hope that I have time to share both. I'll be honest and say there's actually a lot of emotion packed into these stories, so hopefully I'll make it through. The first was our decision in 2005 to move to Zambia. Amy and I love adventure, and we had been discussing the possibility of living and working overseas for the first couple years of our marriage. In 2004, we went on a mission trip to Ethiopia, and we were moved by the suffering we saw as a result of the HIV epidemic there, and truly felt called to be part of the church's response to it. I could probably spend the entire reflection describing all the different ways God worked to orchestrate what happened next, but suffice it to say that he opened the door for us to go to Zambia and provided numerous clear affirmations that this was indeed what he was calling us to do. Then in September of 2005, just a couple of months before we were scheduled to move, it felt like we had the rug pulled out from underneath us. We learned that we were not going to be able to have biological children without the help of assistive reproductive technology, and that it was because of me. So we had to decide, do we postpone or even cancel our plans, or do we move forward and trust that God would provide the family that we so deeply longed for? The next two years were among the most painful of my life, as I felt abandoned, neglected, and even despised by God. And then, just nine days after visiting her for the first time, God shocked us when we learned that we would be able to take our oldest daughter, Coco, home to be part of our family. I tell that story as a preface to the next one, as much for me as for you. Um, as a reminder of how God has repeatedly shown up for us, even in moments of darkness, uncertainty, and despair, especially when those moments have come on the heels of others when I felt like I was stepping forward in faith. So fast forward to 2021. We now have four kids and are living happily and comfortably, COVID and its repercussions aside, in Andover, when along comes an opportunity for me to take a position at the University of California in San Francisco. Initially, it looked like this was going to be an entirely remote position, but when I was formally offered the job, I was told that the expectation was that the position would eventually be a hybrid one uh, and that we would be expected to move to California. And while, I, and while I will say that Amy and I definitely did not feel like we had the same sense of affirmation or clarity that we did when we decided to move to Zambia, after much prayer and discussion, we decided that I should take the job and that we would move our family to the Bay Area in the summer of 2022. I should pause for a second and say at this point that about six months before being offered the job, I had been diagnosed with an ascending aortic aneurysm. The large artery that carried blood from my heart to the rest of my body was dilated, a little bit like a balloon inside my chest. Fortunately, I was originally told that it wasn't too big. Uh, and I was simply going to need to be monitored every year. No big deal. Well, when I went back for my scheduled follow-up in January of 2022, I was told that the initial measurements were probably wrong, 
uh, and that the aneurysm was much bigger than I had originally been told, and that I would need open-heart surgery to repair it, the same surgery, actually, that I had. Even worse, I was initially told that the aneurysm involved a part of my aorta that required a difficult deep freeze procedure where they would induce extreme hypothermia and stop normal blood flow to the brain, a procedure that carried with it a small but not insignificant risk of stroke or permanent cognitive impairment. With my post-surgical future so uncertain, we put our plans to move to San Francisco on hold, held our metaphorical breath, and hoped for the best. And the surgery came and went, and as you can see, I was blessed with an amazing outcome for which I am deeply grateful. We have subsequently gone through the discernment process of whether or not to move all over again, and again we landed on the side of moving. And the transition process has been stressful, to say the least. I'm also not really sure exactly how God is going to use us when we get there, or even if this is the, quote, right decision for our family. But I am trying to remind myself that just as Boaz demonstrated kindness and generosity to Ruth, and God has so often demonstrated his Hesed love to us, he will continue to do so as we step forward in faith on this next phase of our journey. It's hard to leave the safety and comfort of our family, our friends, our community, this community, and our home. But we know that Jesus, our Emmanuel God with us, goes before us, beside us, and is for us. And his grace is sufficient to meet all our needs each step of the way. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses that today I have brought from Naomi, I bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth. The story of Ruth ends with restoration and hope. Uh, the last scene we see is of Naomi holding that child in her hands, holding hope for her literally in her hands. And that child, as we read, birthed and became the father of Jesse. And from Jesse came David, and from David, eventually, down the line, comes Jesus, who is God with us. Full of unfailing love, full of faithfulness, we have seen God's glory, Scripture tells us, in Christ, the glory of the one and only. So in this fourth movement, no one is going to share a story from the front. This fourth movement is for all of our stories. God's faithfulness is not only a story about someone else from a long time ago or in a place far, far away. God's faithfulness is here, and God's faithfulness is now in this place with us. God knows you. God knows your story. God knows what you've gone through, and God is still moving. 
still healing, still restoring, still giving us hope right now. So we wanted to create some space for each of us to remember and name God's Hesed love for us. And we wanted to give you something physical to take with you to help you remember this moment. There are a few steps involved in this next process, so I want to walk through it with you slowly and put some instructions on the screen, too, so that you can follow along visually as well. So first, we passed around these, this little bowl, these little cups with pieces of paper in them. It's not a lot of space in this little piece of paper, but I think it's enough to write down a few words. And our hope here is that you might think of a few words that describe the ways that God has been present to you in your story. Maybe it's the name of a person who has shown you God's hesed love. Maybe it's the name of a place where you felt God's presence. Maybe it's a word that God has put on your heart, an answer to a promise, a symbol of the hope that you have in Christ. So as the bowl comes around, the, the task is to write or draw something on that little piece of paper and then fold it in half long ways, not short ways, but fold it in half long ways so it's a long, skinny piece. And then in a moment, after you've written down what you're going to write down, we invite you to come forward to the front of the room. There are these little vials in this little thingy, they're little glass vials, and you can slide the piece of paper into the vial. Then come to, there are three stages, stations up front that have sand in them and these little Tupperware containers that look like this. There are three of them. So come forward, and the task here is to fill your container with some sand from the stage. This is actually soil and sand that I gathered from the beach here at Lake Saltonstall in Haverhill. It is officially, that's its official name, Lake Saltonstall, but it's more affectionately known and locally known as Plug Pond. And for hundreds of years, people have gone to this place to find refreshment and connection for their souls. So we invite you to come forward to fill your vial with sand. There's no perfect way to fill your vial with sand. Um, and the best way is just like scoop and tap and scoop and tap down the sand. Um, get some sand in there so that it sort of covers and sort of surrounds the word, the promise, the hope that you have written down on your, on your piece of paper. Then you grab a little cap. There are little corks up here next to each station. They're little small guys. And you cap the vial, and then you can take it home with you. Eventually, it's supposed to look something like this, okay? The word you've written, surrounded by the soil, is intended to be a reminder for you that God is with you, that God is for you. In this place, in this moment, with this piece of soil from this part of the country, in this land. So the steps again, write something on a piece of paper, put it in the vial, which will be up here, sort of at this little station. So as you come forward, you can grab a vial, fill it with sand, seal the top, take it with you, and ultimately, have hope. Have hope.